What is up, Reborn listeners? My name is Ashley Horner, and I'm really excited about today's episode. Uh, Just get ready to be inspired, uh, get ready to be motivated, and to listen to this story of a true American hero. Uh, I am so honored to have Nick Laverly on the show with me today. Um, Nick is a active duty Green Beret. He has an amazing story. He is the first Green Beret to return to combat as an above the knee amputee. Uh, he is also a highly sought after speaker. Uh, he has some really, really motivational stuff on YouTube. He's done the TED Talks, uh, really inspiring, just talking about resilience, uh, perseverance, and just doing what it is that your heart calls you to do. Uh, Nick is an Army Green Beret who lost his leg during an attack while serving in Afghanistan. After more than a year of dozens of surgeries, uh, Nick refused the military medical retirement, which he deserved, but he wanted to go back out there and fight and fight alongside his brothers. Um, With a lot of training, uh, he eventually returned back to Afghanistan to conduct combat operations with the same team he was on whenever he was injured. Nick is the first amputee to complete the Special Forces Warrant Officer technical and tactical certification courses. Uh, The list goes on with how much this man has accomplished. And uh, man, whenever whenever I encounter people like Nick, it reminds me that when it gets tough, and it it gets tough for all of us, um, to keep going, And to get back up, and even whenever we get knocked down or whenever the world is pushing us in one direction, but your heart is pulling you in another, uh, to follow that. And it is such an honor to have Nick on the show today. Um, Nick has countless amounts of awards, which I'm sure he will never talk about because he is such a humble human being. Uh, He has the silver star, three purple hearts, two bronze stars, bronze star with V for valor. And the list just goes on. He's been featured in outlets, including Wired Magazine, the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, uh, and many, many others. You can follow him uh, on his Instagram, and it is at machine.nc. So I'm going to welcome Nick to the show, and uh, let's learn all about that, and let's be inspired. Okay, well, Nick, welcome to the Reborn Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and joining me today. Um, how are you? I am doing very well, Ashley. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to connect and looking forward to spending some time together. Yeah. So I, um, I, I was actually doing a little bit of research on you Uh and (laughs) all good stuff. (laughs) You have such an incredible story and, um, I, I want to go back to the beginning. I already, we, we already did your intro. We, we brought you on to the show and I want to know at what age, uh, did you decide that you wanted to join the military and was it, did you always want to be a green beret? I would say I was drawn to being a commando as a little kid, much like a lot of young boys were, you know, running around playing soldier. Um, retrospectively, I think back, I think maybe I had 
a little bit of a deeper connection to it, but at that time, but nothing that was really that significant. I really didn't start taking the military seriously until I got into high school. And I think it was my sophomore year. Uh, I met with the Marine Corps recruiter and he's like, yeah, graduate high school. And then, you know, we'll get you in. And at the time the Marines, you know, those guys were the baddest dudes on the planet and they still very much are. And I was like, I want to be one of those dudes. Um, the only reason why I didn't enlist out of high school was because I started getting recruited to play football in college. So that's mm-hmm. quite literally the only reason why I went to college was just to continue playing ball. It was kind of one of the only things I had that really kind of grounded me to anything. You know, I lacked mm-hmm. direction I lacked purpose, but athletics was something that I really enjoyed. So I went to school, played ball. And then sophomore year of college for me was nine 11. And, uh, you know, that was a huge motivating factor for me as it was with a lot of people, you know, back then. And then at that point, I really struggled to stay in school because I knew we were going to go to war and I wanted to be a part of that. Um, however, I did, you know, take the counsel from some mentors and teachers and family and I stayed in, I, I graduated, I grinded out my degree. And then I started looking at options to enlist pretty much right after that. What were you, uh, what were you getting your degree in? <laughs> I started out as a business management major which lasted all of about 20 minutes once I had to go into calculus as a requirement. And I'm like, yeah, dude, this isn't going to work. Walk down, talk to my advisor. I'm like, get me out of calculus. He's like, cool. These are your options. Uh, (laughs) One of which was criminology. So I just literally took that as my major because it Uh didn't require calculus. Again, actually not much of an academic back then. Um, but uh, that's the honest to God truth as to why I studied criminology in college. Yeah. Yeah. I never, uh, I think I maybe, I might still be a freshman in college, but I, I was a soccer player growing up and that was, uh, that was my sport. I was a gymnast, a gymnast early on. And then I went into play competitive soccer, like pretty competitively. But even for me, I think that I, and especially this day and age, um, education is really important, but I don't think that it's for everybody. And uh, oftentimes the, the, it, it's easy to pressure kids growing up and making them make the decision or like, what do you want to do or what do you want to be when you grow up? And I really think a lot of that has to do with, with adolescence and, or just experiences when you're, when you're an adolescent. And, um, it, I think it takes, a, I, I think it takes a while for us to figure out who we truly want to be and to become. Um, so, so you, did you, you finished college and you, you did the criminology Yep, finished uh, finished college, got my bachelor's in criminology, um, and then pretty much right after started researching options to enter the military. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you went into the army. Was there any particular reason? Yeah, there was really a couple reasons. So I knew really two things. I knew I wanted to go into the special operations community. Um, Mostly because I felt that's where my physical attributes could uh, to be could be best utilized, and I just I wanted to be at the tip of the fight. I wanted to make as much of an impact as a single person could make, and I felt like soft was a great fit for me. Um, so I walked into a recruiter station and I uh, walked into the Navy office first, and there were three branches within the same building. Walked in, talked to the Navy recruiter. And said, hey, what, what do I got to do to become a SEAL? And he's like, yeah, great. You know, you got to enlist in the Navy first. And then you can request to go that route. 
Um, and that's the process. At the time, there wasn't an option to basically bypass the conventional Navy. So I said, thanks. I went down the hall. I talked to the Marine Corps recruiter, had the same conversation, got a basically the same exact answer, said, thank you. I left, talked to the Army, and they had a different answer. And at the time then, which still exists now, there's the Special Forces Recruit Contract Option, known as 18 X-Ray, which gives you the opportunity to essentially bypass the conventional Army and go straight into the Special Forces Pipeline. I didn't, I didn't sign up right there and then. I said, thank you. I left. I went home. I did some research to what exactly an SF team does, what a Green Beret does. And um, even though it, it got me there faster, which was certainly enticing and something that was important to me, having done the research, I do feel that it was what's the best fit for me. Um, mm -hmm. I was drawn to unconventional warfare and everything that kind of gets wrapped up in that. And then I was also drawn to the wide range of mission sets that SF teams are expected to do. So just a lot of diversity, a lot of options uh, for growth and training and education. So that was the, that was the route I went. That was you did. did you have any, uh, after you completed your degree and everything, did you have any kind of like holdbacks or was anybody around you in your, in your life at the time being like, Oh, you just like, you finished your college degree. Um, like, why are you just going to go into the military? Uh, did you, did you feel, did you feel like in your heart, like this was the path that you wanted to take? Yeah, I, I knew that that was without the way I was going. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Initially, though, it's funny because I wanted to join. I wanted to serve. I wanted to go to Afghanistan and fight. Um, but I viewed it at that point as it was kind of going to be a stepping stone. I would go in. I would do my five years of service, get some training, get some experience, contribute. And then I would get out and go into another line of government service. Gotcha. Um, that ultimately ended up you know, obviously didn't happen because really I fell in love with the profession and then my whole world changed and my purpose changed. But to answer your question, actually, uh, my father was, um, who's now my biggest fan and he reads all the stuff and he's all into it and it's great. Um, he was flat out against it. And it was kind of funny because I'm 24 years old, right. Grown ass man, done some things, just graduated college. And I tell him, Hey, this is the route I'm going. And he's like, no, you're not enlisted. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm really, not, I don't need your permission. Like, I'm just telling you that like, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's understandable. You know what I mean? Right. He obviously saw what was going on. He was, he was scared for me and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so I got a little bit of pushback, you know, but mm -hmm. my friends and guys I was close with at the time, there really wasn't much of a surprise. Yeah. Um, what year was it when you enlisted? 2007. 2007. And how many deployments did you do up until 2013 when you had your injury? Um, that was my second combat rotation. And then I had another okay. trip kind of in between that. Okay. Um, so you enlisted into the army, you gave up everything that you had studied for, um, and you served, you joined in 2007 mm -hmm. and then in 2013, um, can we talk about, can we talk about that, that day of work that you had that has that forever changed your life and, yeah. and your, your course? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, let's talk about that. You were over in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. Um, we, we deployed in 2012, like the fall of 2012, which extended into the spring of, of 2013. How and, long were uh, your deployments? Were they six months or a year? Back then we were doing anywhere between six and nine. My first deployment yep. was nine. 
Uh, my trip after that was really short. And then the one in 12 and 13 um, was a six month pump. Mm. Yeah. And um, I mean, we knew kind of the environment we were going into that it was going to be highly kinetic and we were all really excited about it. Um, and we got exactly what we kind of wished for. So there were a lot of guys getting banked up. Um, you know, a lot of guys paying the ultimate sacrifice on that deployment, um, which kind of, you know, it's kind of a key factor because I was wounded three times on one deployment in three separate instances. Like I took some shrapnel to the back of my shoulder after only being there for a few weeks. I took an AK-47. Was this, was this, the, same, was this the same pump? You're the, the one from 2012? Yeah, same deployment. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a few weeks in, took some shrapnel about a month or so later, um, took an AK round to the face. And then fast forward another few months after that is one of my, you know, I got stitched up with a bunch of machine gun rounds, which ultimately ended up losing my leg. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people and they're like, well, how, you know, how were you able to just brush off those injuries? Like those, those are kind of serious. And it's like, yeah, you know, they were, I guess, but in context, when you're looking around and there are guys that are getting really, really banged up and you've got these little kind of flesh wounds, it, you know, mm-hmm. it really didn't matter mm-hmm. comparably it was really easy to just kind of keep going yeah um i think i think it's all kind of relative did they yeah, uh, at the is. whenever you had whenever you had the smaller injuries was there ever an opportunity for you to tap out and go home because of the like the the round to your face or the you know the shrapnels in your in your shoulder uh was there ever what were your injuries that bad where it was like okay maybe you should like go home or like get some better medical attention yeah <clears throat> After the first one where I took some shrapnel, um, there, you know, eventually I got medevaced out and I was at one of the, the bigger hospitals in Bagram and they were looking at it and treating it. And there was some concern of infection because when you have like a giant cavity. You really can't just stitch it shut because it leaves this open cavity for it's prone to infection. So they were just packing this thing with gauze two, three times a day. And there was some concern of infection setting in. So there was some talk about sending me over to Germany to get looked at there Um, nothing that was really taken all that seriously, certainly not by me. Um, it's probably a story for another day, but I kind of went off the deep end a little bit and got a little insubordinate and basically demanded, uh, getting back out to my team much faster than what was recommended. And then after the second one, it was kind of the same story. Um, I don't think anyone really considered putting me on a flight to Germany or certainly not back home to get Mm -hmm. looked at, you know, they were able to treat it locally so it was it, it really wasn't that big of a deal mm-hmm. how big was your team out there or was it is it like your firing squad whenever you talk about going back out to your team uh what is it are we talking about like a five-man team was it like a team of 30 yeah so the uh the standard oda which is, stands for operational detachment alpha which is a long way of saying an sf team is uh is a 12 person detachment and i think mm-hmm. on that deployment we were at 11 or so um, so there was just us, the 10, 11, 12 of us. And then we had, um, a squad of infantry guys that were there as kind of our uplift security. And then that was really it. So it was a really small footprint operating up in the mountains of Wardak province, Afghanistan. And, um, yeah, that was pretty much all we had. So were you the only one that was, uh, getting all these like nicks and cuts in the beginning out of your, your 11, 12 man team? <laughs> no, no, there were other, pe- other people were getting it too. Yeah. There were other guys that were get- getting banged up with, you know, with yeah. flesh wounds and stuff. And then obviously guys that were getting more significantly banged up. You know, I took the AK round of the face. That was a result of a, 
of an IED initiated ambush that blew up a lead vehicle that had six guys in it. And all six of those guys were severely banged up. I, I, could, I still to this day can't believe that they're alive because it was such a catastrophic yeah. explosion. But right. there were amputations involved with that and severe TBI blast injuries mm-hmm. and some other mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, so kind of the, the full spectrum of guys just getting these kind of flesh wounds and then obviously the most extreme guys actually losing their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, leading up to 2013 and this deployment that we're talking about right now, how long had you known all of the individuals that were with you? At that point, had you gone on every deployment with the same team? No, actually, I wasn't. Um, I was on a different team to begin with. My first ODA was a a unique team. It was more of a specialized type team. Mm-hmm. And after my first rotation with them was when I switched and I, I joined this second team, which was a more direct action focused ODA. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. known these guys for a while. I went through the course with a lot of the guys mm-hmm. and we were in the same company. So I knew all, I knew all of them. We just hadn't worked together prior to the train up for that deployment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you got your leg blown off. This is with a machine gun in 2013, right? It was. Yeah. Um, and then you got, did you get, did you go into Germany first or did you go straight to Walter Reed? After the injury, I stayed in Afghanistan about five days um, because I was on life support and I was in intensive care so that I wouldn't have survived the flight to Germany. Once I was stable enough, they flew me to Germany. I was there for just a single day or two. And then I was at Walter Reed. Mm. And you were at Walter Reed for about a year? About a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how was that with the decision to amputate your leg? Was there, was there, did you not have a choice because it was already gone or did you have, did you have any decision in above, like above the knee, below the knee? Um, because it's, it's, it's above the knee. It's pretty high, right? It's all the way up to your, to your hip. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's pretty high. Um, Did you have, did you have any say in that at all? Um, or was it, was it just, it was gone? Yeah, I, I really, I didn't is the short answer. Mm-hmm. They, they took my foot off in Afghanistan. They took me up to the knee in Germany. Um, all of those, I don't really have much memory of spotty yeah. stuff. Right. But once I got to Walter Reed and I, I came off of enough meds, or at least I was somewhat coherent where my doctor told me kind of what my situation was, they were already above the knee and had been amputating. So I really didn't have much of a say in terms of, Hey, I, can, like a limb salvage kind of scenario that really yeah. wasn't a thing. What mm-hmm. was a thing though, was I'd only been at Walter Reed maybe a week or two. And uh, at that point they were literally just trying to keep me alive more than anything else. And my surgeon came in and he said, Hey man, this is me. Here's the deal. Your, your leg or what's left of it is just riddled with infection and bacteria and mold. And it's eating away everything in your, in your leg and it could kill you. My staff wants to amputate you at the hip right now and just get rid of the problem and just get you moving on in life. But I think I can save more of your limb. It's just going to be a slugfest. I'm just going to have to be incrementally amputating millimeter at a time, inch at a time, over and over and over again, and hoping that we can get the antibiotics to, to take over and get rid of the infection. But it's going to it's going to suck. And I need you like in the fight with me. And I'll never forget that conversation, even though I'm whacked out on ketamine and Dilaudid and all this other stuff. But I did look up at him and say, yeah, doc, you know, let's let's go ahead and do it. And that's what it turned into. It was three or four times a week, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday kind of schedule. They would just in surgery, 
amputate a little higher, antibiotics, antibiotics, and then just rinse and repeat over and over and over again for like 35 some odd surgeries at that point, you know, just on my right leg alone, which, you know, I'm grateful for because it left me with what I have today. And the difference between, you know, being a below the knee, above the knee and a hip disarticulation are wildly different Um, mm because it really isn't the loss of the limb. It's the loss of the joint that really makes the difference. So I'd like to think that even if I was a hip disartic, I would have been able to get back to doing what I do, but in all practicality, that, that probably wouldn't have happened. So whenever you realize, you know, you woke up and you kind of came to your senses and realized what had happened and what was happening when you were at Walter Reed, what were some of the thoughts that went through your mind? And I'm sure you get asked this question all the time, but I think that like, I know that we have two people inside of us. We have that person that wants to fight and we have that person that says, no, it's okay. Our, our, our job, our fight is done. And how, how did you, how was that conversation that you were having with yourself, with the person inside of you that wanted to fight? And was there ever a moment throughout this process that at, you were just like, all right, like I, I'm, I'm done. Like my life is over. I don't have a purpose anymore because you know, it really seems like, especially joining and, and becoming a part of, of the army and the, and the green berets and the special forces, like you had such a key purpose and especially in a small man team, like of 12 and everything that you had been to leading up to that injury in 2013, um, did you feel like that that your that your purpose in life and everything that you wanted to do was just was gone? I love how you put that. I mean, I'll probably steal that from you. You got these two people inside you. Um, it's it's true, and I agree with it. Um, and I'm very delicate when I answer this question because the reality for me was I was insistent on getting back to doing what I love to do from the very beginning. Um, yeah. I really didn't go into a, a dock place and, and struggle to try to figure out what my purpose was or what my next step was. I didn't battle with depression. I didn't battle with any kind of negativity like that. Um, and that's just the way that it turned out for me. And again, I say I'm delicate because there's, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. If, if that mm-hmm. happens, I've been alongside many friends that, that go down that road and, you know, they get past it eventually. Um, but for me, that wasn't the case. I I knew what my mission was, even from the very early stages while going through surgeries. I had no idea how and if it was possible administratively or physically or otherwise, but I was dead set on that. And there's a really interesting short story that kind of depicts that. My father tells it much better than I do. He was there alongside me for the first six, seven months that I was in the hospital And as part of the Walter Reed kind of whole of wellness approach, you meet with every type of medical professional there is. And that includes psychiatrists and psychologists. And they come in, they talk to you, see how you're doing, et cetera. Well, he came in one day and I was asleep or I was in surgery. I was somewhere else. And he talks to my father and he and I had had several conversations about, I'm going back to the team. I'm going back to my job. It just, it's only a matter of time. And he says, Hey dad, here's the deal. Um, I don't think Nick really kind of understands his circumstances right now. I don't think he really gets it. I don't think he's necessarily in denial. I think he's more in a state of shock. And I just want you prepared as his father and as the guy that's here with him, that eventually that light bulb is going to click on and he may go down a really dark road. 
um, and, and deal with depression or, or whatever that may look like. And he just wanted my father prepared for that. And my father's like, Hey doc, listen, I appreciate what you're saying. You know, I'll obviously keep an eye on it, but I think he does get it. I think he does know like where he's at and the severity of his injury. This is kind of who he is. And, um, you know, I think he's going to be okay. And that, you know, that kind of ended up being the case. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I knew what I was going to do from the very beginning and there really wasn't a plan B from that point. Mm -hmm. Well, what was your dad saying? Because in the beginning he didn't even want you to go. And now, you know, his, I'm sure that phone call, I can only imagine it's probably so gut wrenching for him. Um, he probably couldn't get to you fast enough, but you know, you just like, you're going through all these surgeries and he's, he's seeing the pain and the suffering that you are going through. And then, you know, you tell your dad that, like you want to get back, you want to get back and you want to go do it. Did he, what did, what was his response to that? Was he like, was he just like, okay, Nick, like, yeah. Like, you know, what, what was, what was that conversation like? At the time, Ashley, he was, you know, completely supportive on the exterior. Yeah, man, I got you. You got this. I'm here with you. Like, let's go, let's go to physical therapy. Let's get through this training session. Let's get through this uh, uh, prosthetic appointment session. He was all about it. Having had conversations with him years later, you know, he was really conflicted with that. And, yeah. you know, he wanted to be supportive and be in my corner, but he was also petrified. And I just put him through the worst experience, you know, a father can go through where your son is on his last dying breath. And then him saying, yeah, I'm going back to do it again. Um, so I don't think he was surprised, but he yeah. certainly was fearful. Um, but he was able to put that aside to be there in my corner and be supporting me throughout as he does to this day, uh, mm -hmm. which just, you know, it's, it gives a lot of credit to him for that, but it certainly extends beyond my father, you know, my mother, my sister, my friends, my other family, all in kind of that same boat. So at Walter Reed, were they telling you to slow down in the gym? Were you pretty eager to get back to your, with your physical therapy and like, were they, are they telling you to like, go back to your room? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wasn't exactly the most cooperative patient at um, times. Yeah. I I can imagine. Yeah. I, I mean, I had, I had medical professionals that were willing, that would be bringing in like little mini dumbbells and little bands that I had like, <laughs> strapped up to my, my bed. And then you're probably like, what the hell is this? Yeah, dude. And I, you know, I'd be like sneaking out of my room to go into the gym and I have a surgery scheduled and they'd come to try to find me. And I'm like in the weight room and they're like, what are you doing, man? Um, so it's comical. And I stay in touch with a lot of the docs and nursing staff that were there. And we kind of laugh about it. Um, so yeah, I pushed the envelope from early on and I certainly went past that line, mm -hmm. um, into recklessness several times and learned really hard lessons through pain and discomfort and failure and, you know, injuring myself unnecessarily. But I was convinced that I needed to be operating at complete mass capacity to be able to find what my limits were. I just didn't know. And I just think that the only way to really know is to really fall on your face. And for me, that was quite, you know, literally fall on my face to try to find, you know, where that, where that maximum output is. So you can be as optimal as possible without being just reckless and borderline insane. Mm -hmm. I always like to say that there's, you can't be able, you cannot calculate where you want to go unless you know where you're at right now. And um, yeah, it's, it's so important to get anywhere in life. You have to know what your limits are right now, where you are. And that's, that is the foundations of, of growth and any area that you want to grow in. So you spent a year at Walter Reed. What was your, uh, 
what was your estimated time that they thought that you were going to have to stay at Walter Reed? And did you, did you get out of Walter Reed early or did you end up staying like a little bit longer because of all the therapy that you had to do? Yeah. They, it's funny. Cause I asked that question. I don't know how many times, how long am I going to be here? And there's really no answer for it. Cause every case yeah. by case is different. I would say I left earlier than what was expected. Um, mm-hmm. Because a lot of guys will stay there until they're much more functional than I really was. I left Walter Reed and I was able to walk under my own power, you know, without a crutch or a cane, but not, not for much longer after that. I was dying to get out of there, not just because living in a hospital environment sucks, but because I knew that my strength coaches and my dietitian and all the resources I had back at Fort Bragg and my unit were there waiting for me. And I was mm-hmm. convinced that working alongside them would propel me faster and at a higher level. <laughs> so I was dying to get back to them. Mm-hmm. So I say I left maybe a little early, but it's kind of a convoluted timeline. Right. Um, but I don't think anyone was also really surprised. And I'm like, okay, like I'm done here. Yeah. Let's, let's get the paperwork and let me get out of here. <laughs> um, so you checked back into Fort Bragg. And then uh, what's incredibly remarkable is you are the first amputee uh, to re-enlist. I don't know if that's the right word. To re-enlist back into the military after your injury and to go back and serve in a combat uh, deployment with the same team. So I am, I'm not the first amputee. I am considered the first above the knee amputee um, to return to combat um, as a special forces operator. Yeah. And it took you two years to do that, including your time at Walter Reed. You, you did your time at Walter Reed and then you went down to Fort Bragg and you started doing tactical training with, um, what else, what else were you doing? I want to know what was the training? Cause I can only imagine, especially being in, in, uh, SF, the, training criteria and the guidelines that it took for you to get to a certain level for your team to have the confidence, right? There's only like 11 or 12 of you, like every single person matters. It's not like you're going over to a deployment and to have like a desk job over there, like real life combat. What was the training light for that year? Whenever you were in Fort Bragg, how did you get yourself ready? Um, and you know, you say you can only imagine, but you literally, um, probably know this better than most because you're also somewhat crazy with your training and your timelines and your, in your discipline yes. and the way you go about just living your life. But, um, yeah, I went back, I took a job as a combat instructor, which we teach hand-to-hand combat and some close quarters battle stuff. And that's what, that was my day job. Um, my training to advance my rehab went on for about eight or so months from the time I got back. And when I tell you that um, I really didn't participate in anything else in life other than that, that that Mm -hmm. is the reality. I was convinced that I needed to completely punt everything. And that's other social engagements, traveling, Mm -hmm. um, relationships. I was borderline obsessed or completely obsessed again, Mm -hmm. borderline insane on pursuing this. And I just Mm -hmm. felt that was the only way I could do it. So it was, Mm -hmm. you know, three or four training sessions a day instructing daily, which is, you know, combatives and hand to hand. That's very physical 
So a lot of physical training, um, some tactical training mixed in there. And then, you know, my nutrition was just completely dialed into the gram. And so it was just eat, sleep, train, repeat. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And, you know, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so grateful that, you know, my now wife at the time, we were really early on in our relationship and we were living together. This is when I got out of, out of Walter Reed and I moved in with her and, uh, I sat down with her and said, Hey babe, listen, I need to go completely all in. And I'm hoping that you're able to understand that and realize that I'm sacrificing completely everything else. Not only was she able to do that, um, from a late relationship standpoint, but it helped it because she was also pursuing some stuff with her work that required a lot of attention and sacrifice as well. So we were both kind of going full steam ahead down these roads, um, in tandem, which, uh, which is amazing because I look back and, Chances are, if she's like, no, nah, this isn't going to work for me, dude, I would have been like, cool, like, see you later. Yeah. Uh, because I'm obsessed. And I look at where we are today, like, happily married, two young boys. It would just be an absolute travesty if that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But it was all in, Ashley. I mean, it's like the easiest way I can put it. I was obsessed to the point where once I started going through all these different assessments, which took about 12 weeks, where I was doing one or two a week, my unit was just throwing all these different things at me. One of the things they made me do was go through another psych screening. And I haven't been told this directly, but I'm pretty sure it's because I was so passionate is probably the most delicate way to put it. I was so out of my mind about what I was doing that my unit, my leadership thought I might actually be crazy. So like, let's go get this guy checked out because <laughs> of what he's trying to do and how he's going about doing it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that was it, you know? I'm excited to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Manscaped.com, the global brand for men's grooming and hygiene products. You know, I love Manscaped because they offer the best tools and solution for the big three odor zones, your body, your butt, and looking at you dudes, your balls. Manscaped just launched their new Lawnmower 4.0 waterproof electric trimmer. And now you can get the ultimate Manscaped experience when you purchase their new performance package 4.0 bundle. With the performance package, you never have to worry about a complicated multi-step grooming regimen. This is an all-in-one kit. Seriously, it includes all the tools to perfect your grooming experience. With a new Lawnmower 4.0 waterproof cordless trimmer, you can tackle your groin grooming confidently without any mess at all while you take a shower. The Lawnmower 4.0 has replaceable ceramic blades with skin safe technology, a built in LED light, a new wireless charging system, and a new travel lock feature. After you shower, be sure to apply the Manscaped Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, a quick absorbing, clear drying moisturizer lotion for all day protection. For that midday refresher, be sure to pack your Crop Reviver Ball Toner Spray with cooling aloe vera and anti-inflammatory properties. But listen, Manscaped is so much more than just a ball trimmer company. The new Performance Package 4.0 bundle now includes their new Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer. This thing is a game changer. When you opt in for the full Performance Package 4.0 kit, you get the biggest bang for your buck. You can enroll in their peak hygiene plan and get ongoing replenishments of your favorite products delivered straight to your door hassle-free. Listen to this. For a limited time, you can also get 
not one, but two free gifts. The shed travel bag and the Manscaped anti-chafing boxer briefs. Go to manscaped.com forward slash Ashley today and get 20% off and free international shipping plus two free gifts. Remember that deal is available at manscaped.com forward slash Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y. Join the Manscaped movement today. Man maintenance for the modern gentleman, your balls and your body will thank you. So I want to know like, why, why, why did you want to go back? And I know that you've talked about something on, um, on your website and, uh, I've read about you as the, uh, your ethos. And I want to, I want to really just kind of dive in with the time that we have left and talk about the mindset and people who are listening to this, you know, the chances are they haven't had, um, the experiences that you have had, but the majority of the population, I would say 99% of the population, something like this would happen to them and they would just, they would, they would, they would quit and and they would be okay with that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like clearly everything that you did, you served your country so well, so brave. You were out there with your teammates every single day. But what, what is it? What is that tick inside of you? Um, why did you feel like your job wasn't complete? Why did you feel like that you did not um, uphold everything that encompasses SF and the Green Berets and, and your buddies out there fighting? Why did you want to go back? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's, it's, it's a layered response. In the earlier phases, you know, my why was rooted in stubbornness, competitiveness, um, a little bit of ego mixed in there. It was about me proving everyone wrong, about me coming back to face the enemy on the battlefield, you know, saying you tried and you failed. It was about, it was about me and mm-hmm. getting back to doing what I, what I wanted to do. As I progressed um, and I was actually starting to make a lot of progress and I was knocking out all these assessments one after another, the light bulb kind of went off one night and I, I really got scared because it was in that moment I realized as we've kind of talked about that I was going back to a team that are going to be depending on me to be able to do uh, certain kinds of things. And it wasn't about me. It was about them and it was about their families. And, uh, you know, I struggled with that for a little bit. And I say a little bit, meaning like maybe 12, 13 hours. And I had some conversations with them and the guys were basically like, Hey, we don't really know how this is going to play out, but we want you to keep trying and keep working towards it. And let's just find out. And I said, okay, cool. And I did notice that once I started using them, as my means of motivation, it actually propelled my productivity up even higher because it was no longer about me. It was about, it was about those guys and their well-being. Um, but you know, in a more macro sense, I, I believe then as I do now that I was put on this earth to be a warrior and mm-hmm. that was who I was and that is who I am. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just think having that sense of purpose and that love in the pursuit of whatever it is, is just so critical because the adversity is inevitable and the challenges are inevitable and the failures are inevitable. And if you were pursuing stuff that 
our heart and our soul aren't driving us towards, it makes it increasingly difficult to get past those, those difficult points. Um, so because I felt like this was why I was put on earth and also the love of the job and the love of working alongside the guys I have the pleasure to work with, um, is what enabled me to do it. Fitness is obviously a huge part and a huge component of your comeback story, um, of getting back out there with, with the guys and like with your team, what is, what has fitness done for you? If you were in football, I'm sure you've trained like most of your life, but how, how do you think that fitness has played, um, played a part in your recovery of getting back? And I'm sure like, I mean, I can't imagine how even just functionally, how you were, how you had to learn how to move the body all over again and the balance that it took. Like I, can't even imagine. Um, how how was fitness uh, a part in all of this and the strength training? Yeah, you're, you're a freaking beast. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the first thing that comes to mind is uh, the fact that strong people are harder to kill, and certainly there's <laughs> I like that. You know, there's certainly the recovery part of strength training yeah. that that was critical, but I like to go back beyond that because this is according to my surgeons. If, if I wasn't as big and strong as I was, I would be dead, period. So mm-hmm. if physical fitness and nutrition wasn't as key of a component as it was in my life before I was injured, then I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Um, uh-huh. So I think that that's critical. And then obviously moving forward, it's it's immensely important, regardless of how many limbs you have. What I did notice was, you know, my, my ability to, to, to blow off certain training sessions and certain aspects of my nutrition, that margin got increasingly smaller as a one-legged guy. Whereas a two-legged <laughs> guy, 6'6", 270, pumped up, like I could blow off stretching. I could blow off range of motion. I could have an extra cheat meal because I was just at high octane and I could just burn it off, or at least that was in my mind. Um, you know, you lose a limb, everything else is compensating much more you know, my actual body mass index becomes increasingly more important because if that gets out of whack, my prosthetic doesn't fit the same. So the needing to, you know, to pay attention to those details that I otherwise probably would have, would have not done, you know, I would have blown that stuff off, um, was, was, you know, was, was education for me. And I'm grateful Mm -hmm. that I had, you know, physical therapists, nutritionists around me to to teach me and, and demonstrate the importance of this stuff. And what's, what's important to know is, you know, I don't, like doing a lot of these things. I enjoy stretching. I'm, I'm sure some people do, but when I do range of motion treat training, I'm like, oh, I just, I'm looking at the clock. Like this is killing me. I want to be clanging and banging and lifting heavy weights and moving really fast and doing the dynamic stuff. But those uh-huh. little, those little components of training um, and nutrition, of course, uh, are super important, right? And mm-hmm. without having that kind of discipline to do the stuff that I really don't enjoy, then I think it's safe to say that I wouldn't be doing what I still do now. Mm-hmm. So your pump back after your injury, was that in 2015, 2016? When was 2015. that? 2015. Yeah. That was my first employment back as a, as a one-legged dude. Yeah. Back to as a, <laughs> and how was that like going back into the, just into the fire? How was that? It was, uh, it was really hot, man. Um, it was hot, hard it was or hot? hot? It was hot as in, as your in Boston not easy. Accent. <laughs> 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 yeah, it was, it was really hot. Um, 
you know, obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're running and gunning through Afghanistan is tough regardless. Um, I still had a lot to learn as an amputee. I had only been about two years out from injury. But what I noticed, though, even though my training, like we talked about, was completely dialed in leading up to me going, I realized once I got there that I had a, a ton of gaps in my game. And there were just mm. these little small ticky tacky tasks that I didn't even think about practicing, like getting in and out of an armored vehicle, getting in and out of a, mm. a, out of a turret, you know, just like these little tactical tasks that I completely overlooked. Mm. And once I was exposed to that, like, oh, shit, OK, I really need to tighten this up and this up and this up. So in our downtime, which becomes few and far between with that kind of op tempo, that's what I was doing. And I'd have my teammates out there on a stopwatch videotaping me and we're just micro dissecting all my movements and they're doing it alongside me. And I literally would be practicing getting in and out of a truck a hundred times over and over and over and over again, trying to find the right technique and then just drilling it like you would do anything else you're trying to get better at. So it was, it was really busy. Um, I was completely exhausted at the end of that six months, but um, also, you know, a really, a really cool ridgeline to kind of get to the top of having that been my goal, you know, for the, for the two, two years prior. Yeah. Um, so physically, would you say that you were, uh, you know, aside from you missing a leg and just like being able to maneuver and learning how to uh, do things that you, you know, didn't really get to to work on while you were stateside physically, did you feel like you were pretty strong going into the, the, the deployment? Oh, I was in, I was in peak performance. Um, yeah. not only, I mean, in the gym, in the weight room, you know, I, I was strong and I was able to move fast, but I was also doing a ton of jujitsu because I was teaching, mm -hmm. but then I was also competing. Um, so my endurance was through the roof and, uh, yeah, I felt physically in kind of a physical training realm. I was mm -hmm. in, you know, some may arguably the best physical shape I'd ever been in in my life. Mm -hmm. What about mentally? Did you feel like you were mentally, mentally solid? Oh yeah. I mean, I was, I was flying high. I mean, mm -hmm. I was exactly where I wanted to be uh, alongside the exact guys I wanted to be alongside of. Um, mm -hmm. I was in a really solid place mentally knowing mm -hmm. that, you know, I had six months of struggles ahead of me. Right. I yeah. mean, so constant yeah. failures and, and setbacks, but mm -hmm. there was no other place in the world that I wanted to be other than right now. Mm -hmm. Well, talking about like mindset, can you talk to me about the, uh, the warrior mindset and what that, what that is and, and what does that mean to you? Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of use the, the warrior ethos as kind of a framework to, to break that down, which is kind of a mantra that we use in the military um, first one being, I always place the mission first. And if you kind of dissect that, unpack that a little bit, it's really gets at discipline. Mm -hmm. We talk about always placing the mission first. And, you know, we talk about discipline, which is a super important word. The way I kind of dissect that a, a layer deep is really the ability to make sacrifices and then prioritize our time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, moving down the, the line of the ethos, um, I'll never accept defeat. It was the second one. And I think when we, extrapolate what's inside that um it's it's obviously the the resilience that comes with it right getting knocked mm -hmm. down seven times but getting up eight i just like mm -hmm. to take it a step deeper in terms of the relationship with those seven times that you get knocked down the actual mm -hmm. relationship mm -hmm. we have with failure and just knowing that that's where the wisdom is located that's how we're able to work smarter and not mm -hmm. being afraid to fail and in some instances actually pu pushing to it deliberately 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'll never quit is the third ethos. And it sounds similar to the first one, right? Like I'm just going to keep going, but I look at, I will never quit as not allowing ourselves to get content and let complacency set in when we are successful. So we mm-hmm. reach that top of the ridge line, you know, mm-hmm. quick celebration, quick pat on the back, quick, you know, cocktail with your buddies or whatever it is you do. And then immediately set our sights on the next ridge line. So we're able mm-hmm. to continue to grow and move forward. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is I'll never leave a fallen comrade obviously has a super strong military undertone to it. Um, and really I'd look at that as, <clears throat> you know, a willingness to do whatever it takes, which is a commonly used expression. And it's really easy to look at that as, you know, intensity and work ethic and discipline and consistency. And all those things are super important. What I like to hone in on is the need for creativity and innovation and thinking outside the box in terms of doing whatever it takes. A lot of times it's not just get the smelling salts out and go, you know, deadlift 500 for a two rep max. It's breaking down self-made barriers and ceilings and getting out of our comfort zone to expand that aperture a bit to find creative and adaptive solutions to problems that we may have. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I think all that's super powerful. Um, I'm talking about like training and stuff. What is your current training like right now? Are you, uh, are you doing a lot of strength training or uh, what does that look like for you? Are you, uh, are you, do you train six days a week? Do you do like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday? So I train, um, four days on one day off. And I use the word off in quotations because I have a really bad time with actually taking days off. It's a, it's a bad habit of mine. <laughs> I stay relatively calculated. You know, I, I like to look at it as more active recovery, but I don't really do well mentally if I don't do mm-hmm. something physical every single day. So mm-hmm. that doesn't mean I'm going in there and just losing my mind. Right. So, but you know, get some blood flow, get some movement, move around some lightweights. I think it's just, it's, it's good for me. Four mm-hmm. days on one day off on repeat is kind of my split. And then I work between um, an eight week strength phase and then an eight week more hypertrophy focused phase. And That's I just awesome. kind of go back and forth. And then my endurance is all kind of mixed in there in between a combination mm-hmm. of anaerobic aerobic training. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what are you I do able to run? Yeah. yeah, you are. Okay, cool. So you, do you, do you do the running? Do you still run? I'm running less and less hurt? frequently. Yeah, yeah. As, as the days go by, um, it, I really, at this point I run solely because of how many times I was told I would never run again. That's mm. why I put my leg on my running leg on mm. to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, training value, it, it starts to become kind of a slanted scale where the mm-hmm. returns aren't quite worth the, uh, the damage that's done predominantly to my hip. So yeah. if I go for a two mile run, I feel good. You know, I conquered the world. I kind of gave the finger to everyone that said I'd never do it, but then I, it takes me four days to recover from that. So, you know, I still do it sparingly. I'd say probably once a week, I'll slap it on and just kind of mm-hmm. get the motion and get some movement, but I'm not doing, you know, three, four, five mile runs or any kind of aggressive sprint work. Like I was mm-hmm. doing maybe just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, after this last deployment, did you, did you deploy again? Or was that your last deployment? Back to Afghanistan in 15? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I've deployed another four times since then. I actually just got back um, not that long oh. ago. Oh, damn, really? Yeah, 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 still going. Wow, that is, that's incredible. Are you retiring anytime soon? <laughs> well, I'm coming up on my 14-year mark. Um, 20 is the time for actual Army retirement, and it would take something crazy to get me out prior to that point. 
um, you know, I made a commitment in 2007. And uh, although my initial motivations were more of a short-term gig, once I fell in love with this, I, I decided then I wanted to make it a career and a profession of mine. Mm-hmm. So I do want to see my uh, my service through to 20. And then the question would be, you know, do I stay in any any, any longer than that? And, you know, we'll see mm-hmm. where that goes. Um, your first deployment back as an amputee and you discussed earlier about how you were having to work through some of those problems of just minute things that you didn't even think about before heading, heading over the pond. Uh, did you notice like, as the deployments went on, like things just became more natural, um, how to maneuver your body and to move around and, and possibly the things that you faced that were an adversity in the beginning, they just, it became second nature to you. I'd say with a lot of things that happened, um, you know, like any kind of conditioning, when you, when you do it often enough, it, it becomes responsive and mm-hmm. kind of second nature. But all the way through the end of the trip, I was still finding, you know, gaps mm-hmm. that were in my game. But what mm-hmm. what what I'm grateful for with having been in that place like Afghanistan that early on in my recovery was I take it back to the States and now I'm about two and, a, two and a half years out from being an amputee. And you start living life back here in America. And it's like, I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world compared to living out of a rucksack in the mountains of Afghanistan as, a, as an amputee. So I get back here and just kind of keeping things in context and having that perspective that I was given by those challenges made life back here um, a lot easier, really. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I just mm-hmm. had to not allow myself to get kind of too complacent know that I'm eventually going to go back and, you know, take the lessons learned from that first trip and apply them and, you know, train and drill and just keep going. Mm -hmm. So people who are listening to this and, um, I want to know like what advice that you would give somebody who is facing some sort of hardship or like, you know, like what, what is it? What is the cocktail of, of creating that mindset and the discipline to not give up and to push through regardless of the adversities that you're facing, regardless of how many people told you you know, you're never going to run again. And, um, wait, what, what would you tell somebody who, who is listening to the show? Um, who's just feels like that they cannot go on and achieve the goals that they have set out to achieve. Yeah. So so many things come to mind. Um, I think the most critical step being step one is determining what that purpose is, what that passion is Mm -hmm. and being very honest with ourselves in what that may be. And I kind of like to have a two-step process where step one is just spend some time in a dark room by yourself, listen to your heart, listen to your soul, um, and, and, and let that drive you. And if that isn't working after some time, because, you know, we got to get going, you know, a, a, another technique is to really hone in on our talents. You know, the things that we do best that comes easy to us are, are naturally given skills and kind of tripling down on those um, mm-hmm. to set us up for success. Cause mm-hmm. without that sense of purpose, like we talked about, I think it's, it's as close to impossible as it gets to overcome those, those, those challenges. Like you yeah. physically, mentally, like we're going to go through really hot times, but if your heart and your soul are driving you towards something enables us to kind of get past them. Um, and then, you know, just, Keeping things in context, right? Things are never as bad as they seem. Things are never as great as they seem. And I think oftentimes, and with injuries, something that you can probably relate to as an athlete, in with injuries, this has this has demonstrated itself to me. Where right when you feel like you're at that breaking point, 
just beyond that is, is where kind of the tide turns. And I've had a bunch of injuries, surgeries, et cetera. And there'd be times in my recovery when I would be at what I felt like my absolute precipice of frustration. Like I am not going to recover from this. I'm never going to get my strength back. I'm never going to get my range of motion back. And I feel like my entire world is going to change. And then the very next day or the day after that, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. I actually can move my shoulder. I actually, I can pick up this gallon of milk. When 48 hours prior, I was convinced that the game was over and it was, Mm -hmm. it was just on the other side of that ceiling is where the, the breakthrough happens. Mm -hmm. So just keeping things in context, um, you know, there's a chance that what you are pursuing just quite isn't your actual purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, so have that honest conversation, you know, surround yourself with a community that is able to give you objective, no shit feedback. Um, mm-hmm. and obviously the support to help, to help pick you up when you fall and then help push you. Um, I think, yeah. So I think identifying that purpose is step one. And then two, knowing that right when it seems like everything is falling apart on the immediate other side of that is, is mm-hmm. some light. Yeah. I, um, I kind of think of it, you know, something as simple as like using this as an example, whenever we're running or wanting to go on a a long run and um, you're wanting to get better at running, you're wanting to run harder, wanting to run faster, longer, you have to go through this phase of where you're suffering. It's in the moments that we suffer and when we're able to find comfort within that suffering, when we're able to find joy within that suffering are the moments and the times that we actually grow. And, um, I, you know, I, I was running with my son. Uh, I have three boys and my oldest, I was running with him and he was just like, Oh mom, it's like so hard. I don't want to go anymore. And I'm like, look, I'm like, we are almost home. We're almost home. And once we get there, once we get to our house, which is our finish line, the suffering will subside, but you have to push through this phase of suffering in order for growth to happen. And I think that like, you know, people, we think about like, you know, and and it's all, it's just, it's all relative, right? Like, you know, what is suffering? Is it, is it in the mind? Is it, is it physical? Um, But if, if we, it doesn't matter what your, um, it doesn't matter how much suffering you can take on. It's all different for each individual, but it's taking your threat, your threshold that you have. And being able to suffer in that moment, because the next time that you go out on that run, the next time that you do whatever it is that's scaring you and you can go through that suffering, it builds the confidence and it builds your resilience uh, to get through to get through anything. And um, yeah, I just, uh, I think that you have such an incredible story and um, it, you know, you are a, a true, true hero, Nick. Um, Final question, maybe a question. Um, what is the uh, what is the legacy that you want to leave behind for your boys? Oh wow, Whew. that's a good one, Ashley. Um, you know, one word comes to mind, and that is the word champion. And I, I leverage this word a lot. And you know, the, in, in today's society, we tend to correlate the word champion to athletics, Super Bowl champion, world heavyweight champion, Olympic champion, right? Reaching the pinnacle of that particular sport. But 
actually the word dates back much farther than that in terms of warfare and combat where we would have we where soldiers and armies and commanders would have champion warfare and if you've seen the movie troy where brad pitt takes out that enormous guy that's an example of champion combat or champion battle where instead of two armies going at it you just have two dudes each one represents the army and the winner takes all okay Champions were also used in combat as well, where if a commander is being overrun, let's say, on his right flank, and he doesn't have the bodies to send to reinforce that flank, he would send a champion that would show up, one dude, and he would show up. And obviously, that dude's individual fighting capability would be a benefit. But what was more impactful was just his presence amongst the other men, the other soldiers, and that would reinvigorate them to overtake that adversity. So you look at it through that lens. You know, champions are really the ultimate problem solvers, and they serve at the behest of their commanders and their brothers in arms, and they are there to solve complex problems. Um, that's what that's deeply rooted in in me um, to to be that problem solver, to be that champion for my teammates, for the the commanders that I serve, um, and then most importantly for my family. Right to to lead to lead a life of honor and integrity with values and strong character to demonstrate through action um, what that is and it, you know you're you're a mother and it's just insane how your entire dynamic and view on life will change when you have children you know I have two young boys so um, they have only only fueled that fire even more um, to just take a holistic approach through that lens across, you know, the spectrum that, that is my life. I'm sure. Well, you're definitely doing that, you know, for your, for your boys now. Where, where can people find you? Where can people follow you? And what is next for you? Um, I do have a website up that kind of has access to all the socials. Um, it's machinenick.com. Um, it's got a bunch of our partnerships. Most importantly, it's got the, uh, the nonprofits and the community and the, uh, and the, and the outreach programs that I work alongside of and support. So you can check all that stuff out on the website. Um, what's next for me is, uh, you know, family remains priority. Like I said, we just got back from this last deployment. So the focus is kind of getting reset and refit on training and then kind of off to the side as I kind of look forward down the line here on, you know, kind of what my next purpose is. And that to me is continuing the life of service, just however, through kind of a different conduit and um, kind of starting to put some stuff together for that. Um, I did just not just, but I do have a book that is done. And thankfully, the Department of Defense just got done reviewing it and giving their concurrence just a couple of weeks ago. Nice. What's the name? Cool. What's the name of your book? Name of the book is Objective Secure. And what's key about it is uh, it's not an autobiography by any means. It's um, it's along the lines of what you and I spend a lot of time talking about. You know, it's in the it's in the self-improvement space, the personal development space. And um, it kind of highlights the the methodology and the tools that I used uh, to get back to operational status and to continue moving forward in my career. And, you know, there's there's personal examples mixed in there, really, just to give each of these principles and tenets a little bit of context. Um, so I'm excited about that, mostly just to have it documented and get it out there and be able to share, you know, the lessons learned and the experience to try to help the next guy or gal that's, that's trying to overcome some really difficult times. That's awesome. When, um, when's it going to be available and where can people get it? I think that it will be out ready to go 
let's say end of September. That's exciting. So are you going to have, yeah, are you going to have like a quick. book signing thing or anything? Are you going to be able to do that? I think I will. <laughs> That's so cool. You yeah, should. I think I will. Awesome. I do want to do kind of a little tour. Um, I'd like to keep it close to, you know, military, um, re- military installations and a couple other spots like that. So I've been talking to MWR, which are the morale, wellness, recreation people mm-hmm. within military bases. So link up with them and really just keep it kind of tight knit in the community and, and make sure I'm giving back to those, uh, to those people that I get the chance to, you know, to call teammates. That's awesome. Well, if you come to Virginia beach, you would have to do your book signing, you know, have a coffee whiskey bar. I do. And I'm dying to come see it. So yeah. now we have a reason to go down there and do it. So yeah, you let me know if you want to come. Are you still in North Carolina? Are you at Fort Bragg? No, I'm now at Fort Campbell, which is in Kentucky. Oh, okay. Well, if you come over more to the East coast, and if you want to do a book signing here, we can definitely set that up. And uh, you could, yeah, that would be super cool it. to do it here at American Brew. And we're a big military community here. So I think it would be very Hell well yeah. uh, uh, accepted here. So um, I love it. Let's do it. Yeah. Wait. Hey, thank you so much for coming on with me. I'm sure like your family's ready for you to get back. Um, probably wrestling if you have boys. I know what, I know what that's all about. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and, um, I look forward to keeping our connection and I can't wait to, to check out your book. I'm definitely going to buy it. Awesome. Thank you, Ashley. Awesome to talk. I look forward to the next time. Yeah. What an incredible story and just getting to talk to Nick. Uh, I, I definitely feel inspired. Um, and I hope that you, the listeners, everybody who's listening, uh, that you guys all feel inspired by Nick's journey. And, um, you know, it's all about overcoming the hardship, this hardships. This is the thing guys is, is we all experience some sort of hardship in our lives. And, uh, I always believe I I've, I've said this for the longest time that, um, it's, it's almost like we, we go through this path in this journey and we experience these little mountains and hills to climb. And every time we go through a hardship, whether it's big or small, it's all relative. That is preparing us and giving us the tools that we need for what lies beyond on our journey. And so, um, I always, I always say that like in the midst of darkness, just keep searching for the light and, like Nick, who has had to overcome so much, he kept his focus on where he wanted to go. Uh, through the darkness, he saw the light. Uh, he searched for the light and he kept pushing himself. And every day, guaranteed every single day, he woke up with a mindset uh, that he will persevere and that he will overcome. And for him, quitting was not an option. From day one, quitting quitting was not even a a part of his vocabulary. And it's just such an incredible, I can't believe he's still going out there and fighting all the bad guys. And it's because of people like Nick and um, people all over the world who go out every single day fighting battles that we have absolutely no clue that's going on in this world. uh, So we can rest peacefully at night. And I'm, I'm super, super thankful and, and humbled by his story. I'm thankful that I got to listen to it. And, um, I hope that it has inspired you and, uh, go out and just at the end of the day, be good humans, work hard and, uh, remember why you started 
and don't give up. Don't give on. Don't give up on those hopes and the dreams. Uh, my name is Ashley Horner. I will catch you guys next time. Thank you for listening to the Reborn with Ashley Horner. Make sure you follow us. Leave a review in Apple. Um, tell your friends and your family about the show. And thank you again so much for supporting and listening to the Reborn podcast from Ironclad. We will see you next week. <laughs>